Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, August the 14th. And today we're going to begin a brief series of messages looking at some of the significant moments in the life of Jesus during his time here on earth, of course. Attempting to see that these perhaps um, what, what these these uh, events can draw and pull out um, and shed light on our own circumstances that so that we can realize the tremendous practical importance of these moments of crises, if you will, in the life of Jesus. And, and so we begin this series in the in the first event of his ministry following his baptism by John, where he was led by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I'm going to be reading that in the NIV. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. There's nothing more important for us than to understand the earthly life of Jesus. There's, there's this, I think, a mistaken concept, or focus at least, among believers that Jesus came to show us what God was like and how he would behave among men. Well, of course, he does show us, if, if the scripture tells us that if we've seen Jesus, we've seen God, but that's not necessarily, the tr- that, that's not necessarily um, what Jesus came, G- because Jesus did not come to show us how, to, how God behaves. It is true, he came to reveal the Father and his character, but in his activity, he came to reveal man, humanity, as God intended humanity to be. You see, in everything he did, we see man acting as God intended man to act from the very beginning. And at the very heart of that manifestation, then, is the key and the secret of human life. The principle on which Jesus lived is the principle on which God intended humanity to live and by which we are to live. And this is what makes life, it's what makes life make sense as nothing else does. And throughout Jesus's ministry, he reminded us continually of this principle, not only by his words, but by his deeds, the way he lived. And he declared it again and again and, and stated this. This is the greatest of all truths. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. Matthew 22, 37 through 38. This is the expression of the trust and the dependence that makes human life make sense. As we've said from time to time, it takes God to be man to be a man as it takes Christ to be a Christian. So put Christ back into the Christian and you put God back into the man. 
It's a revolutionary claim of Christianity. Unfortunately, it sometimes is obscured. And this is why there's so many false claims and so much attempting or so much attempt being made to substitute something dramatic, something eye-catching, something which would appeal to the human heart to sort of distinguish Christianity from any other religious faith. And that is because at times we've lost the vital claim that is already part of Christianity if we preach it as is, as it is in Scripture. The great and radical claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ offers to live his human life all over again in us, in our circumstances, in the midst of the situations that we face daily. So now we're going to look at that principle and put that principle to the test. So in this account of the temptation of Jesus, we see him going out into the wilderness, driven by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be tempted as a man. He was tempted as a human being. So his temptations are then our temptations. And it's why this account is so tremendously fascinating. It's so gripping. It's so practical. Because this is exactly the form of temptation that we can we face daily, day by day. If we discover the secret of how Jesus met it, we shall know how to meet temptation in our own lives. And I think it's important to point out three additional facts about this account or some additional facts before we examine it in detail. Temptation does not come to us because we are sinners. It comes to us because we're human beings. It was not as a sinner that Jesus was tempted. And our being sinners does not add anything to the force of temptation. Jesus felt the full force of it simply because, yes, he was God, but he was a man. It is our humanity that makes us subject to the power of temptation. And during this temptation, we will notice that, that twice Satan said to Jesus, if you are the son of God. So immediately following the baptism, where we have the account of heaven's opening and God the Father crying out, this is my beloved son, the devil, Satan, comes and says, if you are the son of God. That if does not mean doubt. The devil's not trying to cast doubt on this fact. He knew that Christ was the son of God. And that Jesus and he and that Jesus knew it, and that there was never any doubt in his mind. But the if here has the force of the word since, right? It since could be replaced. The word S I N C E. Since you are the Son of God, why not do this or that? It, the whole thrust of the temptation of the devil here is to get Jesus to move off of the principle of dependence and trust on God the Father that lived within, the indwelling. And this is always the thrust of temptation with you and I as well. The devil attempts to get us to act on our own, to act independently of God. That is the nature of temptation. So we're going to see more of that as we as we get into the account here. On one other introductory matter here is, is just to take note of the fact that we are particularly told that Jesus was led of the Spirit, by the Spirit, to be tempted. He was taken into a wilderness now, I, this sounds a bit strange to me, right? The, the first temptation of man occurred in a garden, but this temptation of the second man, the second Adam, occurs in a wilderness. You know, usually, I think, I think we probably all, we don't think of a wilderness as a place of temptation. If we want to avoid some of the problems of temptations of life, we sometimes retreat to the woods, to a wilderness, is where hermits have always gone, attempting to escape the world, thinking to find relief from temptation in the wilderness. 
you know, I think of, and probably many of us think of the city as the place of temptation. If we, if we want to put a young man or a young woman under pressure, send them to the city. That's, that's where they'll be exposed to the full power um, of evil, to the allurement of evil. But this account comes, I think, to correct my false impression and to show us that temptation does not come from without, but from within. It's not the outside force that creates temptation or outward circumstances or situations, but temptation comes from within. Jesus said it is not what goes into a man, but what comes from within, what comes from him that defiles him. So we can see how this strikes at this very common misconception that we probably all have. We think that our failures, our faults, etc., are due to certain outward pressures. If we listen to people talking, we can hear someone explaining, you know, why they did such and such. That you know, they might say, "Well, there was there was nothing else I could do under the circumstances," or I say, "Well." he or she talked me into it, or I simply got carried away. It wasn't my, it wasn't me who was at fault. You see, it was just that the pressures of the situation were of such a nature that I couldn't resist. I was carried away by it. It's, it's to blame. And as Jesus says, it's, it is not our circumstances, but some weakness within it's some allurement to which we yield some inner urge. Jesus therefore was driven into a solitary wilderness with nothing outside that could bring, that could allure him, no pressure from without, so to speak into this highly waste desert there to experience the full force of human temptation to show us that it comes from within. Now let's look at these temptations in the first one. Jesus, or uh, excuse me, excuse me, Satan, the tempter said, came and said, if you are the son of God, or since you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, I don't, I don't think we will not understand. I think we will not understand the power of that on Jesus unless we realize that he had been going without food for 40 days and 40 nights. It is written in what is perhaps the, the greatest understatement maybe of scriptures, and afterwards he was hungry. I mean, have any of us been in a position to understand what the, that word bread must have meant to him? The very sound must have made him drool from, from the urge of his body to satisfy this need. It is indicative and it's important to note that the temptation came out of a normal natural need out of basic humanity. It isn't something, it, it, it isn't something wrong with him that caused his temptation, but simply that he was a human being. Temptations come to us in the same way. Now, per, notice particularly the force of this temptation too, because we, we quickly recognize it in our own lives. What the devil really was saying to Jesus, look, God doesn't really care for you, does he? If you were the son of God, would, would he leave you in a wilderness without food for 40 days and 40 nights? Surely he, he has made some way of providing for your need to be met. I mean, if he loves you. So, so why don't you act on your innate powers of deity since you're God and go ahead and just turn these stones into bread. If, if you be the son of God, since you're the son of God, right? His suggestion is that God is either too busy at the moment, too unconcerned or too something to take care of him. There's this subtle pressure here for Jesus to act on his own, independent of God the Father. And on, that ba on the basis of that, after all, human life is important. After, after all, he's got to live. 
Um, the devil's attempt is to reverse the priorities of life and to make the physical life the most important thing of all. We have believed the lie that the physical life is the most important thing and that if God doesn't take adequate care of us, it's proof that he doesn't love us. Who hasn't heard that temptation? We hear it in, in those who point out the injustices of life, uh, who say, if, if God is a loving God, as you believers, as you Christians say, then what about these disabled people? And, and, and how come he allows death and war and disappointment and tragedy? If God is a God of love, does he not take care of his own? Uh, this is the force of the temptation of Jesus and the power of temptation that millions face today. Maybe some of us right here and right now. So now see how Jesus answers. Immediately he comes back to a proper estimation and understanding of the nature of humanity. The devil's work is always to twist and to distort things and make them look different than they are, and particularly to twist our perspective so that we see life out of proportion. But Jesus immediately returns to the proper perspective of life. He puts things back in their right perspective, on the right basis. He, he brings it back into focus by quoting this word. Hey, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. That is, the deepest need in human life is not the physical. It never was. It never will be. Humanity is more than animal, more than simply an animated piece of meat. A hunk of meat with a nervous system whose principal need is physical supply. Man shall not live by bread alone. Our Lord is saying, Jesus is saying, hey, it is better to die of hunger in a wilderness in right relationship to the God who made us than to satisfy it at the cost of that relationship. With that thrust, he, he ended the first temptation, putting life back into focus, reminding us that we have deeper needs than the physical and that the temporary lack of physical supply does not in any way indicate that God who made us and who is deeply concerned in all of our areas of lives has, has forgotten us or that he's not concerned. So now we look at the second temptation. The first is on the level of the physical. Now, this is on the level of the soul, the second one. Devil look, took, the devil took Jesus into the holy city, sits him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, hey, since you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he pulls his, his, his big card, his, starts pulling out some big guns. Because it's written, he says, he will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's interesting. The first temptation was thrust at, at Jesus' weakness as a man, his basic need for physical supply, his hunger. And in his utter weaknesses, the devil cruelly tried to exploit that weakness and make him violate his most important relationship, which is to trust in the Father. And now this is, this is a typically diabolical move to the exact opposite extreme. So now the devil is saying, you trust in God, do you? Well, I tried to get you to move apart from that trust, but I see you, you really do trust him. Well, that's excellent then. Best thing you could ever do. I agree with you 100%. Trust God. Well, now I suggest how you can manifest that trust. If you really want to show how much you trust God, well, then put yourself in the place of danger. Throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. And by that, everyone will see that you trust, that your trust in God is so implicit that you dare put yourself in this dangerous circumstance. And remember, remember, by the way, it is written that he will give his angels charge over you. He'll hold you up and keep you in all your ways. He'll, he'll make sure you don't get hurt. What a 
powerful and subtle temptation that this is. And it hits right at the most vital need of humanity on the level of the soul, our need for wisdom, our need to know the balance of life, how to avoid the extremes. Satan's tactics are always the same. If he can't push us off on, on his, this side, he'll push us off on the other. It doesn't matter to him which one. And this is why so frequently, uh, why we so frequently find ourselves sort of vacillating from one extreme to the other. If someone has been raised without moral standards, right? Learning to live uh, without that, in, in lust, self-expression. When they become a believer, a Christian, often what happens is they switch to the opposite extreme and they plunge into, um, into a high condemnation, uh, kind of a, a prudish life, um, really obnoxious sometimes. And they begin to act as though there's, there's something basically evil about all these good things that God has given us. There's something basically evil um, about sex, about whatever. It happens also that if someone has been raised according to a strict moral code, then sometimes when they come into uh, adulthood and, and, and there's this temptation to sort of kick all that over and throw away all the standards, throw out the rule book and, and live as, we, as they want to. And it's, it's a phenomenon that we frequently see uh, with, with younger folks when they, when they go to college. And it's simply the ancient tactic of, this, of Satan that when we resist him in one area, he quickly tries to get us to act in the opposite extreme. It's all the more subtle and powerful, of course, when he builds up his argument with Scripture. Here he quotes Psalm 91 and says, hey, you trusted God. That's wonderful. That's great. So now use your trust now to the full. And remember, you, you have Scripture for it. The angels will bear you up in their hands. What do you say to that? Have we ever felt the force of that temptation? Has anyone ever said, look, I can, I can show you from the scriptures that you can, you can do so and so. And, and you say, well, how can I argue? After all, the, the, the Bible says that. The scripture says that. And, and here are all those many arguments based on that claim. The Bible says so. It, it said you can prove anything in the Bible. That's true. If we read it the way that the devil does, we, we, we can see more about that in, later in, in Jesus' answer. But now notice the force of the, the temptation. The devil is saying, look, look, Jesus, you want to demonstrate uh, you want you want to demonstrate your trust in God. I see. Well, well, this is the way to do it. If you really would like to show people how thoroughly you trust Him, here's the pinnacle of the temple. There, there they are. They're waiting below the whole crowd. Just jump off of it, and you will demonstrate how fully God is with you, and and you are a man of God. And this reveals one of the most common misconceptions, especially as believers, the idea that the greatest display of faith is in some spectacular demonstration. We, we hear this in those who say, well, if you really want to show faith in God, you, you have to do some kind of a miracle. The mark of a man of faith is that he's able to do something supernatural. He can do dangerous things. Um, you know, in, in here in rural Appalachia, throughout the mountains, um, we, there used to be you know, churches where you would pick up snakes, um, you would drink poison, you would, you know, Raise the dead. Ah, this, this is the man. This is the mark of faith. But Jesus puts life back in perspective when he reveals the truth. He said, again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The greatest display of faith 
is not in some spectacular demonstration, but it's in the quiet trust of the heart that rests on what God has said. Not just what is said in one place, but balanced truth. Perhaps the most important word in the whole of the scriptures, in many respects, is the one word that he adds, it is written again. Truth does not come to us in a capsule form. It is a complete account, and one needs truth to be balanced against another. We never have arrived at the whole until the complete account is put out and we see its total revelation. This is, of course, the answer to all cults and isms and asms and spasms or whatever who rest on one scripture quoted from the from the book and one from another they can they can produce impressive volumes filled with many quotations from scripture to bolster their arguments and seemly support their quote-unquote truth but the answer is always it is written again dr lewis sperry chafer used to say if they persecute you in one verse flee and to another. There is one further thing in this account. If we are under temptation to demonstrate faith by some spectacular display, we have to ask ourselves the question, why do we want power in our life? To what purpose? What do we want to use it for? Paul, writing in the book of Colossians, prays for them that they might be filled with power. In Colossians 1.11, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That is something we would all like prayed for us. But for what purpose? In order that we might do spectacular things? Marvelous crowd-arresting activities that will make people see God is powerful? Listen to the rest of the prayer for all endurance and patience with joy. Doesn't sound very exciting, does it? But that takes power, patience and long suffering with joy. The quiet life of faith is the greatest life. Now we look at the third temptation. Again, Satan took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world uh, and the glory of them. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. Now the devil moves into into the essential basic part of the human life, the realm of the spirit. Now he removes all his pretenses, he takes off the mask and disguises, and he comes up with a, with a direct, sort of sheer, naked appeal to the deepest desire in the heart of mankind, placed there by God, that his life might be worthwhile, that our lives might be worthwhile, that we might invest in something of value and make this unforgettable mark in the world. Who doesn't want our lives to be worthwhile? Who does not fear wasting our life? Or, or to live in such an unexciting and meaningless way that when, when we're gone, we're immediately forgotten. Who does not want to be remembered and feel that they have done something eminently worthwhile? That is simply basic to our humanity. And Satan quickly picks this up in a moment of time, taking Jesus to a mountain in some wonderful way of showing him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Jesus saw all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. All that has attracted human hearts, causing men and humanities to sometimes leave their families and possessions in order to win the power and place of being exalted in authority and, and kingdoms. And the devil said to him, hey, you can have all this if you fall down and worship me. Now think of the force of that. For, for these kingdoms were exactly what Jesus had come to earth to get. 
He came in order to win the world, that he might be Lord of all, that he might be exalted as a man to the highest position in the universe, fully man, fully God, that every tongue should confess, every knee should bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. This is why he came. Now the devil is offering it to him. But hear this word from Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, who says, it's very interesting that the devil only showed it to him in a moment of time. Just a quick glimpse, almost as though afraid to let the Lord look at it very long, that he might not see the worthlessness of it. The fact that all of this is only an illusion, a a sparkling, a shimmering bubble. It looks solid, looks dependable. It's alluring, significant. But when grasped, it becomes cobwebs. But we notice how Jesus immediately sees through it. His reply, be gone, Satan. Get behind me. For the truth is, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him will you serve. Notice the conjunction of words there, worship and serve. To worship is to serve. To serve is to worship. And only God can give the value to the value to life that we're suggesting here. The kingdoms and the glory of the world will never get it. What we are striking at is the deepest desire of a person's life, to have a life that is worthwhile, because only God can do. Then we shall worship and serve only the Lord our God. And immediately the devil left him, and the angels came to minister him. Now it's important to notice that in this scriptural, this biblical account, as Jesus meets these temptations on the levels of the physical, the soul, and the spirit, each time he used the same weapon. It's the same weapon available to us all. He retreated immediately behind the word of God. He didn't argue. He didn't debate. He took refuge in the word and complete dependence on the fact that God had spoken. The minute he did so, The battle's over. The moment Satan was confronted with the word of God and saw Jesus was taking refuge on the written statement of God, there was no longer any struggle. And this is incredibly important. Our continuing struggle comes because I am so reluctant to take our stand in God's revelation. We feel the force of of the devil's alluring lie that we'll gain something by this action or thought or attitude that's tempting us. We think if we don't do this thing, life is going to pass us by. We're going to lose something. And if we do it, we'll gain this hidden kingdom, which will be satisfying and this incredible experience. That is the force of the temptation. But when we retreat to what God says is the truth about it, then we discover immediately the end of the struggle. We see when it looks as though we're going to gain by disobeying or our one retreat must always be into the word of God. Here is the revelation of things as they really are. This is the way to confront temptation, not with my weak, failing humanity, but with the power of the word of God himself. And when Satan finds himself up against that, he turns and he runs. We can make a sign that captures uh, three truths to be a source of deliverance for us in in times of temptation. And and that sign could be the first of the three. It is written, proof enough. God has told us the facts about life. The second, it is finished. That's provision enough. 
on the cross, Jesus has done all that he needs to be done to break the, the power of temptation in our lives. We don't have to add to it. So it is written. That's proof enough. It is finished. That provides enough. And then the third one, it is I. Presence enough. His indwelling life. His within us is con- it is constantly available to us in order to break temptation's power. This is radical. This is revolutionary. There are few who seem to step out of this kind of living, but whatever it is, but whenever it is attempted, attempted, strange things sort of begin to happen. Not that the life becomes suddenly spectacular and people go around doing miracles and wonders, but in the quiet daily experience of life and the decisions that commonly come in every moment to all of us, there's a quiet trust in the wisdom of God to meet each decision. And things begin to work out in unexpected ways with unusual results that follow unusual decisions. Extraordinary things follow ordinary activity. As God begins to work in human life, this is the secret of human life. As Jesus is demonstrating it, making it available to us as we, by faith, receive Jesus, that his life is lived again in us. Amen, and God bless.